People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Professor Sharma, it's a, ple- it's a pleasure to have you on our radio show. Thank you for having me. And uh, your book, Belonging, the Story of the Jews, 1492 to 1900, is an invaluable addition to any library, any history library, and especially to the, to the collected writings on the history of the Jews. I'd like to ask you about the title. Why did you like title this book Belonging? Well, I think the great problem facing the Jews, which has become a problem of other communities in our own time, is how do you live two lives at the same time? Um, that's to say, how can you keep a sense of belonging to your own distinctive Jewish community and at the same time be fully of the host country in which you're settled? Um, a lot of what's happened in the last few years presupposes accusations that it can't be done, that you're always going to have divided allegiance. Um, but the story, by and large, of life in the you know, life in the diaspora is of, in many cases, Jews who felt and certainly hoped that they could do that, that they could have two ways of belonging which wouldn't cancel each other out or even qualify each other. So it's at the kind of emotional and social heart of what Jews faced. As a professor of history and also of art history, as a writer and also a producer of 40 films for the BBC, how do you approach the study of history? What is your Well, thoughts? you know, the first thing is obviously to discover the truth. We're living in an age when truth is really um, set at naught almost. And um, there are times when historians have to be activists for truth. You know, being a historian isn't, there's, there are many ways to do it, and it's perfectly fine if when you're doing something like Downton Abbey or, you know, any of the historical novels which are brought either to movies or to television are just escapism, you know, they're a stroll down memory lane. But history really with the Greeks, with Herodotus and Thucydides, started as a very serious matter. Thucydides in particular was um, a general who'd fought in the Peloponnesian War, who'd been sacked, fired, and he felt that the whole life of a, a democracy was at stake, and that's the kind of view I've always had, that um, you don't compromise either the scholarship or the readability of your history. Um, if you make it connect somehow with the preoccupations of your own world. Um, so that's one important thing. I'd say the other thing that binds all of my work together, um, as you rightly um, said, Stephen, um, I've, I've been indivisibly um, a historian of art as well as of history, and I've always been interested in visual evidence. For a long time, much of the world was illiterate, and therefore written texts weren't the way necessarily in which people connected to each other and lived their lives. So visual evidence of every conceivable kind, from architecture, handmade artifacts, paintings, things produced by ordinary people, things produced by religions and states, were extremely, extremely important kinds of evidence. And they obviously lend themselves very richly to television treatment. But in a more general sense, um, I think writing is not just the happenstance vehicle of history. It's its heart and soul. And if you don't write beautifully, if you don't care about the way the words lie down on the page, you're just a data bank, ultimately. Um, we are not just in the business of being purveyors about information about the past. You have to make your readers see the place they're in physically. I get my students to describe one of the exercises they have to do is just a physical description of an object or a building that was made before they were born. That's a really healthy exercise, and when they do it, they understand how extremely difficult and challenging that happens to be. So as you kind of immerse yourself, saturate yourself in the archives of the past, both visual and textual, so the writing really needs to take on the richness um, and a kind of poetic precision of about how things look so that just as with any kind of novelist 
people, while they're reading it, feel themselves lost in that world of the dead, feel themselves lost in that world of the past. That's at the heart of it. The book starts in 1492, obviously just after the Spanish expulsion. Right. A fascinating, fascinating byproduct of the Spanish expulsion and the Inquisition, which traumatized both the Jews who left Spain and those who converted and stayed, with the mm-hmm. networks of smugglers and escape routes out of Spain and then later Portugal. Could you describe yeah. this early form of human smuggling? Yeah, it's an extraordinary story, and we it's, it's been known in outline for many years, but it's really only been in the last 20 years that scholars have unearthed an extraordinary set of documents from, ironically, from the Inquisition archives of those Jews who tragically were caught on the routes into Italy, on the routes onward to the only safe place, which was really the Ottoman lands um, of the Turkish sultan. And um, what happened, essentially, it's a story about the Moranas, about the Converses, about the new Christians, who had tried to belong. They took the ultimate step, obviously, of um, pretending to convert to Christianity. They married in church. They went regularly to mass. But, of course, they kept up secret Jewish ceremonies as long as they could and as long as they were remembered um, in their own domestic homes. But they were the target, main target of the Inquisition after the expulsion. Um, the Inquisition suspected correctly that countless numbers of them were in fact secret Jews or trying to be secret Jews. So they were in mortal danger and those very, you know, the very large number of them who'd settled briefly um, in Portugal knew that the Inquisition sooner or later was going to come there too, as it did in 1536. So what was set up, courtesy of some of the great Marano secret Jewish families who, because they're involved in the global spice trade, were incredibly rich, <laughs> they essentially funded this underground railway, which went by ship, by secret passage on ship, from Lisbon to either London, where there was a small but very important secret Jewish community, or to Antwerp, where there was a bigger secret Jewish community. Then they would be taken through people who were paid to um, convey them down or up the Rhine, which means going south, towards the Alps. They were taken in covered barges and then in covered wagons. They stayed at inns, which were kind of safe places, essentially, for them overnight. And eventually, they often had mules or walked right over the mountaintops in great suffering and hardship down into the plains of Italy. Once they got to Italy, to northern Italy, they knew they would be dealing with a very terrifying mounted police force run by a Flemish man called Andreas Feisting, who in the first place extorted money for safe passage, and sometimes worse, arrested old people, children, anybody, tortured them in order to reveal information about the routes. Um, If they weren't captured and interrogated and sent to the Inquisition, they could make it to a number of places, the most famous of which is Venice, but Ferrara was another very important place that was um, immune to the Inquisition. It was its own ducal principality. And uh, the family who governed the, the dukedom of Ferrara, the Este family, were for their own interest, but quite sincerely interested in hosting Jews, so a very important community, not least because it set up a free Hebrew and Italian vernacular printing press. That would be one good place. But ultimately, you wanted to get to Venice or Ancona and get a ship to take you to Salonika or Crete and eventually on to Smyrna or Istanbul. So it was an extraordinary story. This went on for pretty much um, a large part of the 16th century and was the great exit route for um, innumerable tens of thousands of Jews who are heading east. Early in the book Belonging, you describe a seemingly ordinary sea journey from Lisbon to Bristol, following a twin-masted caravel in the dog days the dog days of the summer of 1537, on board with two of the wealthiest women in the world, Beatrice de Luna, the widow of Francisco Mendes, the Spice King, and her youngest sister, Brianda. Beatrice's brother-in-law, Diego Mendes, also Brianda's intended husband, had chartered the caravel from Antwerp and accompanying them with their nephews. 
the wealth and exploits of these families can fill a library and you have successfully and very thrillingly added to the retelling. Can you please elaborate on a part of Jewish history that no way of fiction could ever match? Yes, we we know we know about this astonishing family called the Mendes family. Um, the great historian Cecil Roth wrote about them, but we know more than we ever did before. Now, again, thanks to this same tremendous archival research and hearing a little bit that I did, um, they were important because they um, the the source of wealth for the Portuguese monarchy, in particular, were spices from Indonesia, from East Indies, cinnamon, pepper, nutmeg, cloves. These seem to us to be extremely everyday, mundane items, but they were really, um, they were like gold bars in the, in the 16th century. And um, Portuguese exploration around Africa, um, all the way around the Cape, where you are, all the way to India, um, had got access to these spices. But there was one thing about simply shipping them back, another thing about bringing them to the European market, and Jews, Marani Jews settled in Antwerp and Lisbon, were really responsible for realizing the cash price of these spices. And that was huge sums of money on which the Portuguese crown depended to be able to function as a military um, state, as a state at all. So that the Mendes, the Mendes brothers, in cooperation, who were, had base in Lisbon and a base in Antwerp, in cooperation with occasional partners, one of whom was an Italian house called Afaitati, were a classic problem, really, for the Christian um, Christian kings and emperors of this period. On the one hand, they didn't like people they suspected of being Jews, even though those same people regularly went to church and showed themselves in church. They didn't like the fact that those Jews had so much power, but they couldn't really do without them. Um, but as time went on, uh, and particularly as the Portuguese crown became very close to the Habsburg Empire with its dreams of converting the Jews and its dreams of a kind of Christian conquest of the world, they felt quite rightly that the Inquisition was getting up the upper hand. So the two senior Mendes um, brothers, both of whom had married into what had been the Benveniste family, um, decided to move th- themselves and all their um, millions of ducats gradually abroad. They started this huge business of actually um, moving everything to the east with the full intention of ending up in, in Turkey, where it would be possible to build synagogues, to have Hebrew printing presses, to live pretty much freely as a Jew, even though they were living as a kind of second-class citizen in a, in a Muslim country. Both brothers end up dying early. So in the Talmudic tradition, where a widow regains control over a dowry, these two sisters were pretty much the richest women in Europe. They took full control of the business. And it wasn't just a, a, a spice business. It was a, it was a banking business. It was a business of controlling all these secret human smug, smuggling networks that we've just described. And these are two of the toughest, um, most sort of agile, astute, um, brave women in, in Jewish history. And it takes a long time for them to come out fully as Jews, but they do. Um, the wonderful complication is that the two sisters who become um, uh, Gracia, Donna Gracia and Donna Reina, fall out very bitterly with each other, as Jews are sometimes known to do over the conditions of wills. <laughs> they become for a while absolutely deadly enemy um, to the point where one betrays the other to the Inquisition. It never ends up being um, a terrible matter of a death sentence. But they have a, a full-on ferocious row and one of them stays in Ferrara and dies in Ferrara and the other becomes the kind of great figure known as La Senora um, in Istanbul. And if you go to Turkey these days, particularly to both Istanbul, but especially to Izmir, to Smyrna, you can still find synagogues that were founded by the Senora. There's one exquisite one which burnt down a couple of times, but has been very beautifully restored to the way it was in the 17th century, just behind the fish market, as a matter of fact, in Izmir, and it's one of the most beautiful synagogues in the world. So they became extraordinarily powerful. Their 
nephew, who starts out as Joao Mendes, then becomes the Duke of Naxos. He becomes the second most important person in the Sultan's government, a kind of quasi-prime minister, really, um, for many, many years until he makes one really fatal mistake of launching the Turkish fleet against the Venetians um, in a huge battle, which loses. And he, he, the result is that he loses much of his power, but it is one of the great epics of Jewish history which people really should be more familiar with than many people are. You've mentioned Venice already a number of times. It was yeah. a very in, it was a very important Jewish center for printing, yeah. for creating a space for Jews and Gentiles to interact, and also for its visionary leadership. And in yeah. your documentary, your TV documentary, you show a great love for the for Jewish Venice. Can you share yeah. your passion and enthusiasm for Venice with us? Yes, I'm, I'm sure some of your listeners will have gone to the ghetto, which was, um, we commemorate it, celebrate it is not the right word, commemorate it, the 500th anniversary of the founding of the ghetto last year. It was founded in 1516. <coughs> it's impossible because it is so, um, the synagogues that are built there are so extremely beautiful, so it's very, very easy, and they're largely intact. Um, so it's very, very easy to feel the life of Jews there. Um, at that uh, commemorative ceremony, one of the elders of the Jewish community did say, and I, I understood how he felt completely, he did say he didn't want to sentimentalize the ghetto. He said, after all, it was ultimately a prison. And he's right about that. I mean, it did, it did matter, however um, emotionally we feel connected to it. It did absolutely matter that when sunset happened, the gates shut, the, there were locks on the gates, there were boat patrols around the mini island which surrounds the ghetto. So you never felt quite free. The only Jews who could go out after dark were doctors or, very interestingly, dancing masters who were also in almost as much demand as, as doctors. But nonetheless, during the day, as you imply, Stephen, it was possible for Jews to leave the ghetto, and many, many did, work in the city, and it was also possible for many Gentiles to come in and work alongside Jews. So there was some mingling, and there were some great so-called academies. There were musical performances, both inside the synagogues and outside the synagogues, to which Jews and Gentiles both came. Gentiles came and heard the sermons at Rashot of the most famous rabbi of Venice, who I devoted a chapter to, called Leonid of Modena. Um, so there was a lot of back and forth things. So even though this took place within the parameters of a place to which Jews had been confi confined um, for their residence, there is this extraordinary kind of yeasty brew, I'd call it, of um, cultural interaction between the two cultures. And you still feel that there, really. If, if your readers haven't gone and they're interested, I really strongly recommend they go, because you do, despite the kind of great throng of tourists, and there, there are tourists from all over the world, not just Jews, um, when you're in the Spanish and Portuguese synagogue, or the so-called Canton synagogue, or the, Ashken the little Ashkenazi synagogue, you have an immediate sense, actually, of what life was like. It didn't prevent, of course, many of the Jews ending up in the death camps. But actually, the percentage of Italian Jews generally, interestingly enough, um, once not just... It was partly because Jews did better, of course. Ter it's a terrible thing. But Jews did better in countries which were allies of the Nazis and countries which had been enemies of the Nazis. I mean, they were kind of intermediaries. <laughs> Excuse me. In the case of the Italian Jews, um, there were countless individual priests who put themselves in the way of deportations. And in Venice, that was particularly true. You've written books on both Rembrandt and the Dutch Golden Age. That's Rembrandt's eyes and to the embarrassment of riches. You write about the Dutch Jewish experience with great feeling right. and knowledge. The, the earliest Jews in South Africa were from Holland, and mm. most South Africans speak Afrikaans, which is based on Dutch. Right. So we have a, a degree of connection to Holland. But we are mostly a Lithuanian Jewish community today. Right. Can you enlighten us on some of Dutch Jewish history? Well, you know, the, the whole book is full of um, certainly dark moments where this issue of belonging at the heart of it was disappointed. 
the experience in Central Europe is one case in point. But it is also a book full of successes about being able to belong to two different worlds at the same time and it not be a problem. And probably the most successful case of all is indeed in the Netherlands. Um, and it's partly because actually the Netherlands doesn't have a state church. The Dutch Reformed Church is the dominant church, but it is not a state church or wasn't under the Dutch Republic. And therefore, it didn't have the powers of mass conversion, even though many Calvinist pastors wanted, you know, ultimately the Jews to convert because actually the conversion of Jews would be the signal for the return of Jesus, the return of the Savior. Um, so it was a very kind of devolved and decentralized world, and that was always the best kind of world Jews could settle in. And there were also, just as there had been commercial reasons for the Portuguese for a while, to have Jews around. So there were equally important commercial reasons for the Jews with a kind of global network of economic contacts from India to South America, from India to Brazil, to be of huge use. And because there were no guild restrictions on the new industries like tobacco and sugar, the Jews had a kind of head start, and the Dutch knew that. And Jewish investors and Jewish ship fitters and so on were um, in uh, in... Um, you know, they had a very important place in, in Holland. But of course, what's much more interesting is that um, what took place, particularly in the relationship between some of the most important rabbis and teachers in Amsterdam, the most famous being Manasseh in Israel, and Christian clerics, who were radical and rather informal Christian clerics, like a man called Adam Borel, was kind of genuine companionship, a genuine friendship. They... Um, Adam Borel and an extraordinary figure and I spent a lot of time on called, called Jacob Judah Leon, who was somebody who built a scale model of Solomon's Temple, which became one of the, the greatest tourist attractions for everybody in Amsterdam. They together did a vocalization of the Mishnah, uh, which was an extraordinary thing for a Jew and a Christian to do together to give people a sense of actually how vowels operated in the original Mishnaic manuscript, pre, pre full Talmudic manuscript. So that's a good example of two, a Jew and a Christian, both of whom don't pretend to be anything but a Jew and a Christian, um, actually working together, spending time together, going to see each other, um, not forfeiting their own particular kind of religion, and yet developing a kind of um, cultural and intellectual bond of sympathy. But the whole story, um, there are so many firsts in Holland, really. You mentioned Rembrandt, and there's, Rembrandt had plenty of arguments, some of them quite bitter, over property lines with Jews. He got into a row with another Jew called Diego D'Andrada, who'd commissioned Rembrandt to paint a portrait. And Rembrandt could be, a, as you know, beautiful, but very free portraitist. And Andrada actually kind of sued Rembrandt because he said his painting wasn't a good enough likeness of the young woman, probably his daughter. Um, but Rembrandt, much of his life in Amsterdam, lived amidst Jews. Before he owned the very grand house, which is still there in Amsterdam, he lived in an area where, which was densely populated first by Sephardi Jews, and then with quite a number of Ashkenazi Jews called Fluentberg. And Rembrandt had a tiny house um, amidst sugar refiners in Fluentberg when he first went to Amsterdam in 1630 31. So I think the the... The real interest is that it was a kind of matter of habit for Rembrandt. He was not interested in the demonology of the Jews, did you know, the blood, anything like the blood libel. He was not interested in strenuous activities of conversion. They just happened to be his neighbors. And the world now divides into those people who want for their neighbors only those who look and sound like them and those who are perfectly happy to have neighbors, people who don't look and sound like them. And that was... Rembrandt's case, they were all part of the great, you know, human circus for him, I think. Uh, I found your chapter on Poland, the Paulin, here we will right. large, right. here we will dwell. It was fascinating, especially the early period of Jewish life in Poland, which almost has a fairy tale feel, utterly different from the terrifying hatred and anti Semitism of the twentieth century. And then the later period in Eastern European Jewry where with the rise of the Hasidic movement, your right. explanations for the ex, for the exponential growth of Hasidism yeah. in Eastern Europe was fascinating and refreshing. Drawing more on 
demography rather than the usual explanations of the the 1648 1649 Cossack devastations. Right, right. Could you? T- well, I think I think I think this was, of course, you know. I mean, extraordinarily great writing about Chrysidism, um, not least um, Gershom Sherlam, of course, actually. Um, but, but we have a big, for historians, there's a big kind of time problem. If you think it's a response to the misery of the violent, brutal, bloodthirsty Khmernitsky um, Cossack attacks, um, really, we have a whole century before, at least, we have actually more than a century before the Belgian Tov was active, before Hasidim is really flourishing as um, as a kind of culture. And, you know, for me, it was much more, of, it, it, was, it was a kind of cult youth movement. I mean, if you think about kind of rock and roll concerts, I know Hasidism, Hasidism to be offended by that. But it had, we, we know from contemporary documents that it has itinerant groups of mostly very, uh, really quite young men traveling um, sometimes on foot from court to court, uh, from Sadiq to Sadiq. And the the overwhelming attraction of Hasidism is that it's stressed emotion rather than uh, an emotional communion, um, you know, the intensity of devotion. Ultimately, if you had to choose between prayer and study, Hasidism always chooses prayer. Of course, study of the Talmud, of the Midrash, of Agadah, as well as of Halakha, is incredibly important, um, of the great commentaries of Rashi and so on. But the heart of Hasidism is always emotive, intense, mystical communion um, through prayer. And that was really quite a radical departure. It it was basically a kind of youth culture. Um, and not that it didn't have... We always think of the Hasidic Tzadikim as old men with enormous flowing beards, which, of course, many of them did have. But the, the old men with beards started as young men as well. So this was a really... And, you know, the Mitnardim, um, like the Vilna Gaon, were quite right to react with perturbation and hostility to the growth of Hasidism because it really was um, you know, I'm not sure the non-Jewish world, you know, they call ultra-Orthodox Jews um, Hasids without any sense of understanding how a very particular kind of Judaism Hasidism is um, and it was really a kind of almost a cultural civil war um, at the end of the 18th, early 19th century between the two ways of approaching. Not that the Vilna Gaon did not also stress the importance of prayer and the importance of emotional bonding um, and of difficult. It did, but it was ultimately the Vilna Gaon was a kind of titanic analytical intellect and the Belgian Tov absolutely was not. Um, so it is really a different sort of story of belonging. It's how do you belong as an absolutely devoted Jew in, in two different ways. And the last question, I've got so many more, but we've got a limited yeah. time. In your dealing with the beginnings of Zionism, you turn to Odessa in Ukraine, which yeah. you describe almost as like a forerunner to New York, where the old ways could be discarded, fortunes could be made, secular Jewish yeah. identity and culture could be developed, but it always had an undercurrent of anti-Semitism that could mm. unleash violence and death. This is the city of the Efrusis and the Brodskis and 130,000 other Jews. But yeah. to Leon Pinsker, this was his Dreyfus living in Odessa with the violence always presence. That was his mm. Dreyfus trial moment. Yeah. And it it was his chauffeur blast to awaken his Zionistic uh, yearnings and then create the beginnings of the, the foundations yeah. that you finished yeah. the Book of Both Herzl and the first Zionist Congress in Basel. This right. this just a few of your thoughts on this as the the last. Uh, yeah, the last I, th- I think uh, yes. I, I I don't know if you've been to Odessa. I have. It's still a magical place, actually. I mean, it still has so many traces of Jewish life there, and so many gigantic Jewish names. We sometimes, um, you know, we sometimes forget that Vladimir Jabotinsky grew up in Odessa, for example. And actually, wrote a, if your readers don't know it, Jabotinsky wrote an absolutely gripping novel, um, rather brutal, as you might, not, not physically violent, but brutal in its view of human relations, <laughs> called The Five, and it's an extraordinary novel. 
Um, but Odessa was really a very poignant turning turning point, really, because Odessa was the place um, where Jews really did their best to be like other people. They had secular education. Um, girls had a secular education. They learned all kinds of modern languages, starting with Russian. There were very few limits on the kind of occupations you could have, all the way from being a docker down by the docks to being oh, a university teacher or an engineer or a, a composer of popular songs. You had, it was not just like New York, it was almost like what Tel Aviv became. Um, but the problem was, of course, at the end of the 19th century, right across Europe, Jews had been attacked for allegedly remaining separate. But, of course, when they completely tried to remain Jews but be fully part of that Russian-speaking world, they were attacked for being too assimilated. So it was a kind of lose-lose situation. And I think, actually, for me, one very important figure is Pinsker's friend and collaborator with um, producing auto-emancipation and ultimately the Chofevitzion, the Lovers of Zion movement. And that's Moshelib Lilienblum, who starts as a shtetl boy, a very orthodox, learned boy from the shtetl in Lithuania, and then gradually becomes, actually very, very suddenly, becomes disillusioned with the life of the shtetl and the life of the yeshiva. And he, for him, Odessa was a liberation. It's a way to be a modern Jew. But pretty soon he's kind of disillusioned with Odessa too. He not only feels the possibility of a pogrom around the corner, even in this very modern, breezy, pleasure-loving city, <laughs> but he also feels Jews are kind of alienated from their roots in Odessa. And he is a man with, he wrote, we know a lot about him because he wrote an extraordinary memoir. And this book, this is a book full of memoirs and Jewish autobiographies of every conceivable kind. So you hear both Pinsker's and Lillian Bloom's voice. So they felt really, to be fully a Jew, um, you, you shouldn't delude yourself that you could always live at ease in a modern world. And it's a sort of tragic conclusion to come to, but it was, you know, prophetic and important. And as you say, it was from there that Zionism really springs. Just to finish off, is there going to be a third volume? Oh, yeah, of course, yes. The, the most difficult one of all to write, of course. But I'm going to give myself a year. I'm, I'm working on a very la long television series about world art. Um, which will be broadcast all over the world, actually, next spring. Um, and that's, that's uh, giving me... Even I can have too much Jews, actually. It's hard for you to believe, Stephen. Uh -huh. But um, even I need a, need a break from Jews from time to time. Shocking, though, it may be to hear that. Yeah, so uh, good, uh, a good exposure <laughs> to world art and then back to the story yeah. of the Jews. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Back to a very, of course, tragic time in our shared lives. From South Africa, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, Stephen. That's and uh, the book deserves a very, very wide readership. It belongs, you. belonging belongs on every bookshelf, on every library. Thank, thank you for you. your time, and we look forward thank to you. your TV series and your your books, your your articles that appear in the Financial Times. Whenever you write, whatever you produce, it all has the Simon Sharma level of brilliance. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Okay, bye-bye. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. It was our first part of the show. It was an interview with Simon Sharma, the author of the book, of 17 books. The, the producer and the maker, the presenter of more than 40 BBC uh, documentaries. His most recent book just came out the end of October is his second volume of the story of the Jews it's subtitled Belonging his first volume of the story of the Jews covered from 1000 before common era to 1492 the year of the Spanish uh, expulsion and his second volume goes from 1492 to 1900 it's a big book but it's an extremely uh, valuable book not only is it informative but his style of writing is so immediate and it's so engrossing and also entertaining it's our history it's our story and uh, it is a very 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 worthwhile book to read there's something brilliant on every single page of the 700 pages 
and the amount of research, but the passion that has gone into that book, you heard, you heard that all reflected in uh, in Simon's, uh, just the thoughts he puts across, and he's so eloquent as well, that eloquency comes across just as clearly on the page. The next thing that I wanted to talk about is the book, the book of the moment that everyone is trying to get hold of, because all the copies that were supplied to the bookshops actually sold out. Uh, the President's Keeper by Jacques Poe. Now, this is a book that not only is it creating headlines because of the allegations in the book, but there's such a story around the book. I was at the launch for the book in Hyde Park uh, uh, on Wednesday night. Exclusive Books had the launch, the Johannesburg launch uh, on Wednesday and while Charles Poe was uh, sorry, while Jacques Poe, while Jacques Poe was being introduced by Peter was 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 being inter- interviewed by Peter Bruce, the legendary South African journalist and editor, and just when Jacques was talking about some of the most severe allegations in the book about Zuma's end game, the electricity in the shopping center mysteriously just went off. And the generators, this is Hyde Park Shopping Center, the generators, which should have been humming into life immediately, also failed to go off. There was a group of ESCOM people who were working on electricity outside the shopping center. And the next day on Thursday morning, ESCOM did take responsibility for what had happened. But the coincidence and the exact moment when the interview was brought to a shuddering halt, left almost everyone in the audience thinking one word, sabotage. Now, I was actually standing next to Willem de Klerk, who is Jacques Poe's lawyer, and the first question that Peter Bruce asked Jacques Poe was about the letter that came out last week. It was made public after the show. Last week on the show, I said, run and get the book before someone bans it and later on Friday last week the first letter from SARS and the SSA was made public now a new letter has been uh, uh, more 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 developments have happened just in the last 24 hours I'm just going to read to you the the press release that I received late yesterday from uh, Nas Booker, that's the publisher of the book. NB Publishers note with grave concern reports in the media that state security agency, the SSA, has laid charges against the President's Keeper's author, Jacques Poe. Police have not been able to confirm the nature of the charges to our attorney, Willem de Klerk, because their systems are down. They say there are two separate complaints. Instead of investigating what Poe's explosive new book reveals about the agency, including that millions of rands of taxpayers' money was blown on a bogus parallel intelligence network, the SSA has chosen to shoot the messenger. Nevertheless, Poe will cooperate with the authorities, and should they wish to engage with him, they can do so through our attorney, Willem de Klerk. Poe, who exposed the apartheid-era Flockplast death squads, is one of South Africa's most respected investigative journalists, and NB publishers stand by our courageous author and our book. The laying of charges follows an earlier threat this week by the SSA to pursue legal action against Poe and NB publishers if we do not retract certain parts of the book and withdraw it from circulation. We have refused to bow to the bow to the pressure and will continue to do so. NB Publishers will proudly defend our author against any legal action and are grateful and heartened for the many offers from civil society groups for help in this regard and the upwelling of support from the South African public. Since, it re- since its release on 29th October, more than 25,000 books have already been sold in South African stores and more than 50,000 are on order. The President's Keeper is the fastest-selling book in South Africa since official Nielsen data began in 2004, and it was also a global bestseller on Amazon at the weekend. We'll be back straight after this ad break. People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. We've just been talking about the results of the release of the book, The President's Keepers. 
that's the book by Jacques Power. I did mention it last week. I've just continued the story around the book this week. Uh, you almost probably have to wait for a while before you can order an actual printed copy, but it is available in ebook form. Uh, the publishers have asked that they do. They are aware that the P- a PDF form of the book is circulating around on social media. But if you buy that, you then cut the publishers and the author out of their royalties, which is like a second crime that they're suffering after all the uh, pressure that the state organisation authorities are putting on them for doing the only thing that. Jacques Poe knows how to do, bring the truth to the light of day. So rather buy the book, the e-book is available and the printed form will be in the shops as soon as the NB printing presses have finished printing the next few thousand books. Now, for all of our listeners, I love rewarding our listeners once in a while. I've got two books to give away today, both literary fiction, so they're not going to make easy reading, but they'll make very rewarding reading. The first book we're going to give away, all you have to do is WhatsApp us or SMS us with your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading. The SMS line is 34519. The WhatsApp line, the WhatsApp number is um, 061-895-1019. But before you start writing, uh, sending WhatsApps and SMSs, just listen to what the book's about. It's called The Good Lieutenant, and it's by Whitney Terrell. Whitney Whitney Terrell's remarkable novel of the Iraq War literally starts with a bang, as an operation led by Lieutenant Emma Fowler goes spectacularly wrong. Men are dead, one a young Iraqi, by her hand. Others of the casualties were soldiers in her platoon, and the signals officer, Dixon Pulovsky. Pulovsky is another story entirely. Fowler and Pulovsky have been lovers since they first met at Fort Riley in Kansas. From this conflagration, the good lieutenant unspools backward in time as Fowler and her platoon are guided into disaster by suspect informants and questionable intelligence. Their very mission, the consequence of a previous snafu in which an American soldier had been kidnapped by insurgents. We hear the voice of Lieutenant Fowler, but also those of jaded career soldiers and Iraqis, both innocent and not so innocent. Ultimately, as all these stories unravel, Terrell reveals what can happen when good intentions destroy, experience distorts, and survival becomes everything. It's literary fiction. It is published by Picador. It's The Good Lieutenant, and it is our giveaway for today. The It's an Iraq war story. Now for the books that I want to discuss specifically on the show. I've chosen the theme for today, and that theme is the two books in the build up to World War II uh, and then an actual World War II story. So we're looking at World War II, the rise of Adolf Hitler and the world's on the edge of war in 1938. So the first book we're going to look at is called Munich. It's by Robert Harris. Robert Harris is one of my favorite authors. Thrillers, often with the historical or very, very contemporary perspective in politics. He was the political editor of the Guardian newspaper and in 1988 he actually made a documentary on the 50th anniversary of the Munich Peace Summit between Neville Chamberlain and Adolf Hitler in the city of Munich. This is a part of history that he does find extremely relevant. And it's the setting of his latest book. Last year, his book, Conclave, looked at a very, very contemporary power play within the Vatican. And Munich is looking at a power play and historical forces in the city of Munich. September 1938, Hitler is determined to start a war. Chamberlain is desperate to to preserve the peace. The issue is to be decided in a city that will forever afterwards be notorious for what takes place there. That's Munich. As Chamberlain's plane judders over the channel and the Führer's train steams relentlessly south from Berlin, two young men, travelling with their respective leaders, have secrets of their own. Hugh Legat is one of Chamberlain's private secretaries, 
previously he was at the Foreign Office. Paul Hartmann, a German diplomat and member of the anti-Hitler resistance, knows Hugh from the time he spent studying as a university student in England. Great friends at Oxford, before Hitler came to power, they haven't seen each other since they were last in Munich when they went hiking six years earlier. Now, as the future of Europe hangs in the balance, their paths are destined to cross again. What Robert Harris does so well in his historical fiction is he takes the facts and he manages to open fictional spaces in between the historical facts where he inserts his characters and he creates a tension. The truth is in a book like Munich, the, the, the amount of tension that he could create is very, very small in the sense that we know what's going to happen one year later with the, with the, with the declaration of World War II on the 1st of September when Nazi Germany invades Poland. But within this book, he is able to create that tension and that, that, that sense of a thriller from a position where his main protagonists are right there at the very, very negotiating table with Neville Chamberlain and with Adolf Hitler. So that's Robert Harris, Munich. All his books are brilliant. I've especially found extremely rewarding, both from an entertainment and from a, uh, a learning perspective, just an educational perspective, his Cicero trilogy, Lustrum Imperium and Dictator. Uh, his, his books are all brilliant in his contemporary ones like the fear index and last year's conclave also shame to be a master of the thinking man's thriller and munich is fully in that category of books it's a historical thriller but it is a very 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 powerful book something that's i think we're all looking for and it also has a lot of relevance today because of the rise in right-wing politics and fake media all around the world. So that's Munich by Robert Harris. The next book I'm going to look at, the next one is also uh, pre-World War II. This is called The Trial of Adolf Hitler, The Beer Hall Putsch and the Rise of Nazi Germany. This is by David King. David King is an historian and he's produced a highly detailed study of Hitler's failed putsch of the 8th of November, 1823. So that was just in terms of time, two days ago, and you have to go back in time, was the anniversary of that of that event. But in 1923, in Munich, and the trial that catapulted this relatively minor local leader onto the national German stage, in an astute work of scholarship and vivid narrative of vying personalities and power, Kentucky-based historian David King, who has written previous books, non-fiction books, about uh, this period of history. One book, The Death in the City of Lights, the serial killer of Nazi-occupied Paris. In this book, The Trial of Adolf Hitler, David King chronicles the ill-planned, audacious attempt by a small but growing right-wing party of disaffected thugs to seize the reins of Bavarian government. Harnessing the post-war disillusionment with the peace of shame, that's the Treaty of Versailles, crippling reparations, hyperinflation, the fall of the German monarchy, and the rise of a socialist republic for the first time in German history, a number of right-wing groups emerged in the early 1920s, specifically Munich's anti-republic, anti-parliament, anti-communist, and anti-Semitic nationalist socialist party. Hitler was known as a speaker who could fill the beer halls and whip the throngs into a frenzy, seizing the moment and backed by the party's paramilitary wing, the well-regarded war hero General Erich Ludendorff and Hitler's own band of murderous bodyguards, he did just that at Munich's Bürgerbollkeller. In three parts, King illuminates this dark saga. First, the actual putsch, which entailed the party's taking of Bavarian government officials as hostages, and the storming of the war ministry, only to be removed by the Munich police when no real plan for a march on Berlin emerged. Second, the month-long Munich trial itself, which largely tapped into public sympathy for Hitler and his theories, resulting in a conviction of high treason, 
yet a jail sentence that allowed him to be released on parole after eight and a half months. And finally, his incarceration in a fairly luxurious cell in Landsberg prison, where he was celebrated as a hero and where he wrote his book, Mein Kampf. This is narrative nonfiction, the trial of Adolf Hitler, and it looks at the rise of this small local politician into the Fuhrer who unleashed his destructive policies so 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 destructively on the whole world. So that's two books we looked at so far. Munich, Robert Harris, The Trial of Adolf Hitler by David King. And then we'll have one more book after this ad break. People of the book on 101.9 High FM. Uh, the last few moments, we're just going to mention one more book. It's also in this theme. It's a World War II book. It's based on true events. It's called The Saboteur, and it's by Andrew Gross. It's a suspenseful world. It's a, it's a suspenseful World War II thriller, and as I said, it's based on true events. Kurt Nordstrom is part of a ragtag resistance that wants to take Norway back from the Nazis and from the puppet dictator Vidkun Quisling. The war is going badly for Germany, and rumours among the Quislings have it that the Norsk hydro plant in southern Norway is Hitler's golden goose. Why the Nazi? Def- why? Um, though no one understands why. The Nazi defeat at Stalingrad gives Hitler a new urgency to develop a weapon that could tilt the war his way. He desperately needs the heavy water, deuterium oxide, the Norsk plant secretly produces. It is critical to make an atomic bomb. This is the story of the saboteurs, the group of Norwegians, who take on a mission impossible to destroy the Nazis' goal in Norway where they could make the nuclear bomb. So that's Saboteur, The Saboteur by Andrew Gross. It's based on true stories. It's based on a true event. It's been told before, but Andrew does it in a way that is both thrilling, suspenseful, and exciting. So everything that we've mentioned on the show today has been posted on the Facebook page. Go to Facebook, search for People of the Book on 101.9 High FM. Our interview with Simon Sharma will be on the podcast as well. And until next week, keep reading and good Shabbos.